0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context.
1: Well, it is my honor on the broadcast today to have Dr. Robert Yarbrough. He is professor of New Testament at Covenant Theological Seminary. Prior to that, he was at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. From 1996 to 2010, we crossed tracks in Illinois there and didn't know it. He was at Wheaton College for a few years, 87-91, and then he went was at Liberty from 85-87, to 87, and he got his Ph.D. at the University of Aberdeen, which I have great respect for. Only smart guys can do that. So, Bob has also been involved in theological education in Africa since 1989, especially in the Sudan area in South Africa. He travels extensively in Eastern Europe and has also taught in Hong Kong and Australia. In the U.S., he's pastored or served on pastoral staffs in Montana, Missouri, Illinois, and North Carolina. Bob is the author, co author, and editor of numerous books, commentaries, and essays. He's been married to Bernie, who is a nurse since 1973. Two adult sons. He's coached high school football, America Legion baseball, and was a lumberjack by trade. He's also a teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church of America. See, I went to Stephen F. Austin where we posed as lumberjacks, but we weren't lumberjacks by trade.
2: Well, that may be something to be thankful for.
1: (laughs) How long did you lumberjack?
2: Well, I cut timber in Montana and Idaho for five years, and uh, I climbed trees for Davy Tree Company for a couple years.
1: And that's when you decided to go to college,
2: right? No, you know, I always loved that work. I didn't go to college because I didn't like to work. Uh, I went to college and grad school because God was calling me into the ministry. And little by little, I realized how ignorant I was of God's word. And if I wanted to fulfill my calling, I had to learn more than I could learn on my own. So that's what drove me repeatedly back to different academic programs.
1: Well, we're glad you spent the time and the and the sweat equity to study and learn and teach and write. We are talking about the little book called Titus that Paul wrote to this man that we don't know a great deal about. So let me start with the question I like to ask our subject matter experts. Give me a you know, 25, 50-word overview of this letter that Paul wrote the younger Titus.
2: Well, this is what you could call a pastoral letter to encourage, uh, reorient, stabilize and fortify a long-term co-worker of Paul. They'd been together for over 20 years, I think, when Paul wrote this. Mm -hmm. So he's not a newbie, but he's in a very difficult situation. And so Paul's just to renew some of the things that he needed to be renewed in.
1: Give us a little background on him. I know we don't know a lot. Eusebius thought he was a bishop of Cretan churches, if our memory serves Maybe the first bishop in Crete, some called him. What's your take on that?
2: Well, Eusebius was just inferring what seems to be the case from reading Titus. Of course, Paul is an apostle, but it seems that on this island, Titus is in charge of the pastoral appointments. And by definition, especially by Eusebius' time in the fourth century, that would be an overseer or a bishop. So I don't think he had any knowledge outside of Titus about that. It's just, it goes with the turf of being charged by an apostle to appoint pastors that made you an overseer of pastors or a bishop.
1: We often differentiate, at least I do, maybe you have a different take on it, but Presbyteros versus Episcopos, somewhat interchangeable uh, where we get the word Presbyterian from obviously, and then Episcopos where we get the word Bishop overseer. He's told in chapter one, verse five to appoint elders And again, what's your take on those two words in the first century? Were they somewhat interchangeable, or do you see maybe a a little more definition?
2: You know, if you look at this reference that you pointed out, and then in Acts 20, Paul's speech at Miletus, they're called shepherds, they're called elders. Mm -hmm. In 1 Timothy 3, it's uh, overseer. So I think you could have a situation where there was an informal sort of bleeding together of the meaning, because different functions. But then as the church matured in different areas, you know, different words may have sort of evolved to mean a more formal church office. But in the New Testament, I think that they're more informal and functional than they are high church titles of some kind.
1: Precise, yeah, yeah. There is a sense, I guess, in some of the, at least my study, the presbyteros tended to be a little more defined as an older person, where episkopos, the overseer, the bishop, the skopos, was a little bit more of a, you mentioned shepherd, overseer type thing. But I think it's interesting how we've evolved in, you know, especially in our own country where we have denominational lines across these terms. So it's just interesting to see how language develops from usage in the
2: time it was written to how we use it today. Yeah. You know, in Titus in verse five, he's told to appoint elders And then verse 7, he says, for an overseer must be above reproach. So there he seems to be, you know, using the same term for both people, even though I would agree with Eusebius that, practically speaking, you know, Titus is overseer over overseers. Right, right. (laughs) You know, in this case, he's being called to train people or to uh, do leadership training for people that are, so to speak, under him, but not because they're inferior, but because in any ministry situation, you have to have organization. And have organization, you have to have a certain hierarchy.
1: Exactly. This term, you read it above reproach. We read it twice in those verses in verse 5 through 7. And, of course, that's one of Paul's go-to words when he talks about this. I've argued that that word is sort of the overarching principle, above reproach. And then we get some explanation of that. Uh, Would you take that differently? Would you expand on what above reproach might mean?
2: Well... I wrote a commentary and spent a lot of time discussing this word, but I think the way you're proposing to take it, I think that works. I think above reproach works as an overarching rubric. And uh, if you wonder what that means, well, read the next verses and you start to get some definition of what it means for somebody in this situation to be above reproach. What it can't mean is something like sinlessness, right? Or a person that nobody has ever criticized about anything, because by that measure, you know, Paul was being reproached all the time. Mm. Jesus was being reproached all the time by people who didn't like him, who were trying to kill him, who were against him. I actually like your thought very much there, because we don't have to go outside of Titus to determine what the word means. We can say, well, these next few verses, not arrogant, not quick tempered not violent, not greedy for gain, and so forth, that's what it means to be above reproach. Mm-hmm.
1: I love the word pugnacious. You don't get a chance to use that word very often. <laughs> <laughs> Not pugnacious. Well, I have to look that up. What does that mean? Well, that's good that you don't know what it means. But it's interesting that the character of these men that he's after, you know they need a good reputation. It's the kind of, I would tell our church back in D.C. where I served for 12 years, we had a very large elder board of 50 men. And I said, you know, when we say these men are elders, we're stamping the word example on their forehead and saying these are the kind of people that, you know, in their marriages, in their family, in their business, in their relationship with others, and their the way they treat non-Christians, this person is a good person. They love Christ, and it comes through. And I find that striking that in these so-called pastorals, because he's writing to individuals primarily, that we see this so important in the foundation of the Holy church.
2: Character is critical for leaders, not only the pastor himself, but everybody who's there to be the support and enabler for him. You know, there's something that goes with that, and you're going down through and looking at the characteristics, but that verse nine there is very important too, and that has to do with doctrine. Let me go ahead and read it. uh, Being able to be instructed and to instruct. Yeah.
1: Let me read it. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with teaching so that, purpose clause generally, so that he will be able both
2: to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. And I can imagine somebody who does a good job of portraying a certain persona, they look like a good character, but they're either ignorant of God's Word or they're indifferent toward it. Mm. So that last bit, you know, being a student of the Word and somebody who has a desire to explain it to others, you know, in other words, to make disciples. That goes along with the character as defining the kind of person Titus is calling for here. Mm -hmm.
1: I remember many years ago reading an abstract. I believe the title was The Rise and Fall of Andover Seminary, but I could be wrong. But that's what the abstract was about. And they traced the shift of board members, presidents, faculty who moved away more and more from the original charter, we might call statement of faith or doctrinal statement. And the class I read that for, we were looking at other Ivy League schools that at one time were, they were ministry centers. They were, in those days, they were to train men for ministry. And those you know changes for good, for ill, for other points. But I read the verse like this and I go back to, if they don't know the word well enough to teach it, to exhort sound doctrine and refute, and that doesn't have to be, pugnacious in their refutation they can refute you know carefully kindly lovingly but you know to be a leader of the household of God which arguably is the most important group on the planet right you want people who really know the word who are sound in their theology and can talk to people that might have some different ideas
2: that's very true I don't know what's your experience been Michael is it easier to find and uh, test for so to speak the character or is it easier to find people who are doctrinally sound and strong in the word and strong in explaining, or is it you
1: know sort of equal? That's a $64,000 question. I think the former is probably quote easier because I think most people, unless they're like you or me that are highly motivated to read scripture, to study, to read the Bible every day, what a notion, or they had some really good training. And then we could also talk about personality types, right? There are self-starters and people to take initiative yeah it's a that skill versus character is certainly a balance which is also another reason why we have plurality right because that way we have you have a doctor who's maybe a really good diagnostician or maybe he's really good at prescription you got an engineer or you got an hr person that really knows you know employees and human relationships and so that's where the plurality seems to come in
2: yeah but and this is a critical question in the nature of the church, as well as the nature of leadership. When it comes to being a disciple of the Word and being capable of making disciples of the Word, is that just for some people whose personality type comports mm. with that? Mm. Or is that sort of a definition of what it means to be a, a serious worshiper of God in the name of Jesus Christ? Yeah. Because if really... It's more about being a nice person with good character and, you know, kind of believe in Jesus and show up for your meetings. That's one way of looking at sort of a godly leader in the church. And then there's kind of a lunatic fringe that really study and and are committed to learning and sharing. But Titus seems to be saying we need people of high character, but we also need people who are zealous for the word.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. One of my big soapboxes over the years has been When I used to do lots of conference speaking, and I would tell these pastors, we're building churches metaphorically and physically. We're building buildings and programs and waiting for someone else to make disciples. And Jesus told us precisely the opposite. He said, make disciples, and he'd build the church. Now, I'm not saying he's literally going to do brick and mortar, but you know my point. And I think it's easier to build a building, literal and metaphorical, than it is to make disciples. So church programs and church, you know, incentives and staff tend to go those directions where if you're not making disciples, this has been a long axe of mine to grind over 40 years. If we're not making disciples, we're failing It one of the clearest things he told us. And I'm with you. I think, you know, to have someone who can, I use the example of, you know, in a given church, maybe let's say the sign gifts are a debated issue. Let's say the church has got a statement of faith that says they're cessationist, for example. Can an elder have a new couple coming to the church and they love everything about it and then they get into membership class and they find out the church is cessationist and they go, well, you know, we speak in private tongue languages. That's a crucible for how that man is going to shepherd because if he can kindly lovingly say, you know, I respect that. I appreciate that. I'm not here to pick a fight. We hold to this for these reasons. Now, if you want to be a member, we're not saying you can't hold that belief or you're wrong. What we're saying is that's an area you're going to find attention. That's an area we're not going to change on. And we'd love to talk to you about it. You know, can in other words, can he kindly instruct them as opposed to just waving his arms and saying, oh, you're not a cessationist. Or in the case of a church that held sign gifts, you're not a church that, you know, you don't believe in sign gifts. Of course you can't be a member. And you and I have lived long enough
2: to have these kind of examples happen a lot of times in local churches. Sure, sure. Well, I think you've got Titus on your side in terms of uh, <laughs> prioritizing discipleship as a sine qua for a church leader.
1: Absolutely. Let's jump to chapter two. Now we're going to differentiate. And, of course, Pauline literature is so well organized in the main. It's so if we just take our time. So he's moved from this salutation, which we don't gloss over when we read it. Faith, hope, and love, of course, come out in most of his writing. We now have this, for this reason, I left you in Crete. You've got to set up the leadership structure of the churches. Now, in chapter 2, he's going to say, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting. We're going back to sound doctrine. And then he goes, older men, older women, younger women, likewise young men. What's he doing here, Bob? Walk us through Paul's arguments and why he writes this way.
2: Well, I think there are a lot of considerations that are uh, primarily pastoral. I think Paul understands that if a church is going to flourish, it's all hands on deck. There's not just a few people that need to be living godly lives, but from the older to the younger, Mm And uh, both sexes, there's a lot for everybody to be appropriating every day of the grace of God and the word of God, because everything that God's people do, you know, can be glorifying God or not glorifying God or indifferent to God. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, Paul is somebody who is going to use the word consumed by You know, I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, Mm -hmm. Galatians 2.20, and I think he had lived himself into a relationship with God which affected everything that he did, He was still growing, in really the the wonder and the joy of that kind of relationship with God, which affects everything. And so he's delegating to Titus, the ministry of the word that will enable people who might in a normal situation, so to be cast off. I mean, what do we do with old men and old women in the church? Mm-hmm. What good are they? Or, you know, young men, young women, they're so inexperienced. I mean, maybe when they get to be 35 or 40 or 50 or whatever the age would be, then maybe there'll be abuse. No, Titus is to dignify everybody and take everybody seriously because God takes everybody seriously. We can all glorify God, and that's a wonderful thing about our oneness in Christ that There's a unity before God and we're working together, but God knows us and cares for us individually and not just as a corporate group. That's one of the major things that's going on is that every demographic, every age group is taken seriously by God and God wants to lift them up and make them part of his light to the world through their faith in Christ.
1: You know, and it's so counter or contra. Some of the accusations the church takes today because if we carefully look at these documents, Bob, the gospel was expansive. The gospel elevated women. Christ elevated women. The local church, as you said wonderfully, it's everybody. This is a, you know, it's not just for these teaching elders or the people that are recognized as leaders. It's the men and women we would say today who, well, they used to fill the pews. Right now they're waiting for COVID to go away, but they used to fill the pews. And
2: we'd say, you know, you need to be involved in growing in Christ. Yeah. And, you know, I tell my students, of course, a lot of them are training for pastoral ministry and a lot of them are not men. And and that's great. I like for everybody to get theological training, but those who are going to be in pastoral work, I tell them one of the markers of a good pastor is somebody that knows the name of children Mm. and the children like to come to church because they know that they're going to notice them,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: you know, maybe squat down and talk to them that care for people that So to speak, don't matter. I mean, everybody matters. And a good pastor looks people in the eye and knows his flock and doesn't ignore the people that on paper might be of less importance. And again, like like older people, boy oh boy, how many pastors have made it through crises because the older women in the church were praying for them? (laughs) Yeah. A lot of times it's the older widows in the church who have the time and the godliness. You know, they're the Corey Ten boom types, they're the people that really do know the Lord and walk with the Lord. And a big part of a pastor's job to encourage everybody because it's through the prayers and dedicate everybody that God's work moves forward in that church.
1: You know, it's interesting you mentioned the age group because that's been something, I don't know if it was instilled in me or my mother taught me or whatever, but you know, looking people in the eye and getting down on your knee and talking to a kid, it's amazing. And as a pastor, most of the 40 years, nothing more fun than when some little kid I barely know runs up and grabs my leg on Sunday morning and says, Hey, pastor. Like, wow, that kid has somehow attached or identified that you're a pastor in a local
2: church. Woo. That's a big deal. Yeah. It's a wonderful feeling. And often it goes along with what I call having the goodwill of the mothers in the church. Oh
1: yeah. Yeah.
2: If mothers see that their children kind of like to go to church because they kind of like the pastor. You know, there's kind of a personal thing there. It makes parents' jobs much easier if the pastor is not either sort of a negative or a neutral factor. And a lot of times, probably, you know, pastors are not that much of a positive or not because they're bad, but because they may be kind of unknown, right, you know, personally to the kids. But right. I think Titus gives us a model here where, you know, Everybody is noticed by the pastoral overseers.
1: One thing I noticed when I was teaching through this as an overview are the number of times Paul uses the term good deeds. And for a, a letter this short, is it one, two, three, four, five, six, six times, one's implied, he uses this phrase. First time is in 2 7, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Verse 14 who gave himself, speaking of Christ, for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. That would be the other side of the implication. And then chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. And then we jump over. It's sort of referenced again in verse 5, but again implicitly there. He's talking about he saved us not on the basis of deeds. And then we read in verse 8, engage in good deeds, and then finally in verse 14, engage in good deeds. Bob, help us, because you know we have the tension of faith and works. We have the tension of what we would call a, a Calvinistic soteriology, that we come to Christ by faith. Our sins are in our place on our behalf instead of us. We do nothing to merit our salvation or to keep our salvation. It's the grace of God, by grace you've been saved, through faith, not as a result of works. But then we read Ephesians two ten, these good works that he prepared before time that we should walk in them. And I don't know about your experience in the Presbyterian church, but mine in the Bible teaching church, this has always been sort of a conundrum because if I do the good work with the intention that I'm supposed to do it, or I should do it, or ought to do it, have I, you know, sort of disavowed already. And then what are these good works? Color it in for me a little Bob.
2: Well, you know, you could say that this is one of the issues that gave rise to the Protestant Reformation. So in a brief interview, I'm not going to be able to call it, you know, very graphically or widely, but uh, I think a key here, two keys, one with Paul, where he tells the Galatians, what matters is faith working through love. Mm -hmm. You know, so if we have a relationship to Christ, that is a faith relationship. That's gonna drive us, it's gonna compel us certain behavioral expressions of that. And the Bible gives us lots and lots of commands that help us to get a feel to color in, to use your word, we can color in God's moral character and how he calls on us to reflect that. So implicit in a faith relationship to God through Christ are behavior patterns that are not gonna go in certain directions, and they are going to go in other directions. Now, that's Paul. I think behind Paul, we've got Jesus. You remember on the Sermon on the Mount, everybody from Sunday school remembers the wise man built his house upon the rocks and, and that story. But in that context, you know, that's where he's saying, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do all kinds of things? And he says, I'm going to tell them, go away from me. I never knew you. Hmm. I never knew you. So we come to know Christ through faith, and he's saying there, you know, you can do lots of works in my name. You can do miracles in my name. But on the last day, there are gonna be people that say, Lord, Lord, and that did lots of things, but I never knew them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I think the key here is personal relationship with God through faith in Christ. Notice in Titus 1.16, they profess to know God. Yeah but they deny him by their works. So there's a disconnect between what they say they believe and how they're living. So the gospel creates a changed life, a changed heart, a changing mind, so that more and more there is a match between what we say we believe about Jesus, crucified for our sins and risen from the dead, and then how our lives reflect that. As Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Hmm. You know it's a hard question Michael because the answer is sort of a of a dynamic answer. It's not just a simple principle because our walk with God is not a principle. <laughs> and we can describe it with principles, but it's like your relationship with your wife in a good marriage, that relationship can only be defined by the living out of the relationship. And that involves trust or faith, but it also involves behavioral gestures, things that you do because you love that person that honor that person. So basically, to sum it up, you know, the key to the resolution of the faith works dynamic is a personal relationship with God through Christ. And this is the God in Christ of Scripture who defines himself copiously, Old Testament and New, with many, many commands to his people that help them see what it means to live out God's character in relationship with him.
1: You know, as I think about, you know, raising kid, we have four kids and a few grandkids and, you know, there's the whole, your children may relate to the father with all sorts of complication, but I like to use the algebra, absolute bars. You know, if you have an equation that's inside the absolute bars, the outcome is always positive, even if it's negative. <laughs> so, so I use absolute bars theologically and say, <laughs> if I love my father, I want to please him. Now, immediately, red flags go off. I'm not a pleaser. But if I love my Father and he is teaching me good things, I would do well to listen to him. And so, not to be too anthropomorphic, but to say, if we love Christ, if we love, and you referenced all the, the statutes and uh, commands in the Old Testament to boot, if we loved God and we read his word, I still go back to if I'm not in the word every day, I'm in trouble. Just because I forget everything. But but if I'm in the word every day and I, I read something and it catches me going, oh, I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for, how have I given myself up for Cindy lately? And so that motivates me as the truth of scripture. I go, okay, how do I make Cindy's load a little lighter this week? What can I do to help her and demonstrate I love her? I'm not doing that out of an obligation to curry favor or be a pleaser, I'm doing that because I love God, hopefully. I love my wife, hopefully, and I want to be the kind of man that God wants me to be. So you're right, we can't solve this in a 30 or 40-minute conversation, but I think this tension, Bob, is huge in the heart of the, quote, average Christian, that he or she does not understand good deeds or good works or even obedience and love. And that verse you read, 15, uh, 16, is chilling. Well, their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Oh, that's a hard one
2: to read. Yeah. Well, it's all painful if you're talking from a discipleship standpoint, sometimes from a parental standpoint, certainly from a pastoral standpoint, because, you know, people struggle. People struggle in their lives, and, and often they'll be diligent, church-going people Sometimes they kind of give it up or they're sporadic, but sometimes, you know, they're, they're showing up. But they have a credible Christian profession, and they're not robbing banks and killing people. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're immoral people, but there's something fundamental missing. And that's where, again, I go back to Jesus saying, depart from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. Mm-hmm. We can have Christian beliefs and Christian behavior and not know Christ. That's That's chilling. That's just the way it is. And that's that's another reason, Michael, we need to read the Word of God every day so that the Holy Spirit can continually renew us in our walk with God, just as we need to be renewed in our relationship with our children, renewed in our relationship with our wives. We need to be renewed in that. And then as servants of the gospel, you're a pastor and and I teach and I preach, we need to proclaim the Word of God week by week because a lot of people, the light hasn't gone on. Mm -hmm. and they may not know it hasn't gone on, and when it does, they may or may not perceive it as a conversion. That's for God to determine. We do have a lot of of people, I think, that are sleepwalking Mm -hmm. in the household of God, and we just need a, a diligent testimony to the living Christ at all times so that when that juncture comes in a person's life that they're really ready to get serious, they're sick of themselves, they're sick of their sin, they're sick of you know, what they feel deep inside as is a, is a kind of a phony religiosity, God is very anxious to switch the light on. Mm. And uh, that third component, that's the, you know, you got faith, that's one component or belief that has to do with doctrine. You have works that has to do with obedience and ethics and commands. But there's a, if you think of those as X, Y coordinates, there's a Z coordinate. And that Z coordinate is devotion, love, feeling, a personal rapport with God mm-hmm. because he's come into your life and changed things through the gospel of Christ. Mm.
1: Which I think is such a remarkable. And of course you're the scholar who's written the commentaries, but the faith, hope and love triad in Pauline theology just blows my mind. We put it on greeting cards, but what you just articulated is so that's the crux of this whole the word gospel, I think, but the transformation of the gospel are those three things Interestingly, he seems, at least in my study, to emphasize those at different times and different settings
2: when he writes these uh, letters. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, you know, faith, hope, and love, that's a great triad, but so is the three times three of the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the gospel benefit is so rich that it can't be reduced to three or nine. Oh, sure. Any number of things.
1: We're just using illustrations and allusions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I tell people, all the questions I have when we walk across this threshold to the next, they'll be gone in the first nanosecond or whatever is a sub-measurement of that. And then we'll be understanding Christ and rejoicing forever. (laughs) Let's talk about chapter three. And again, he talks about be ready for every good deed. And then we get this positive negative, which Paul is so good to do. uh, Malign no one peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy and hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, and here's the verse we want. Not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Give us Dr. Bob's running commentary on these first five verses of chapter 3.
2: Well, let me uh, just observe one thing here with respect to the first few verses, where he says, speak evil of no one. Mm -hmm. Some translations say, have every consideration for all people. And just think of the difference in social media if people cut other people's slack instead of thinking and saying the worst of them. Yes. (laughs) I'm afraid that sometimes in the church, and I know I've been guilty of this, we forget what you read in verse three, you know, what we are guilty of ourselves. And and then you get the ugly Mm self-righteousness of religious people. And Paul knows that he's been delivered from many things, but when he writes to Timothy, he still has this, Sense of being uh, the chief of sinners, you know. So that's one thing I want to emphasize in what you read is that we really should be people of graciousness toward others and not people who seem to be condemnatory or dismissive or, you know, know it alls or people with such strong political leanings that you really, I have no real interest in you unless you agree with me politically. I think that would be an application here. And I think Mm -hmm. in our climate, especially today, Christians have to be very careful that their politics aren't so loud that their Christian witness can't be heard. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So that's one thing. The other thing is, it's interesting. I take it that you're using the New American Standard? Yes, sir. Because it translates deeds. And that's a good translation. It's better than uh, the NIV, I think, which translates what is good. Mm Mm-hmm however we translate it what we need to understand is that the word line behind it ergon work or erga in the plural it's the things that are acts of obedience to god's law or god's commands so you know deeds i'm a little older i remember the boy scouts and you know the uh the motto was do a good deed daily mm-hmm And uh, when Paul uses the word deed, he's not talking about, you know, once in a while you help somebody across the street who needs it. He's using a word that, you know, we're not saved by works, but you need to do works. So we're back to our earlier discussion. We're not saved because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of God pouring out the Holy Spirit and regenerating us and renewing us, we are zealous precisely for the thing that did not save us, which is good works. You know, you mentioned verse 14 in chapter 3. It says, be zealous for good works. So, on the one hand, we glorify God because He saved us by means that we could not possibly have arranged or even willed. Now that He has claimed us, we find ourselves, especially if we're in the Word, like Michael, you, you say you're compelled to be, we find ourselves constrained more and more to figure out ways you know that we can be zealous to make things happen that are in God's favor.
1: Yeah. You know it is striking how the English translations render and fuss with verse five at great length, and I appreciate your differentiation of that because we come with a I don't want to say this a presupposed answer to a question we don't really have. <laughs> it's, you know how, how did he really save us? And again, that works. I was reared in the Roman Catholic tradition, of which I have great love for many of the things about it, but this was a a watershed, because even though Christ died on the cross, you know, it was contingent upon what I did or did not do to assure and ensure of that, and I could never be sure of that in the Armenian theological framework. And these kind of verses, you know, rocked my world and perhaps rocked many people's world that, wait, he saved you not based on what you did or the manner or, you know, I would say we bring nothing to the cross, but according to his mercy. And again, that's so hard transactionally for humans to comprehend. Wait, I don't do anything? Well, yes and no. (laughs) You know, you're responding in faith. Well, that's not a work. Well, is it? You know, we have these, we parse these things endlessly, but that's why I said earlier about, you know, basically reformed soteriology that he calls us We respond to that by faith at some time in our life, whether it's we were five years old and our mom was reading a Bible story and we knelt by our bed or, you know, we were at some Christian camp or as a teenager or later in life. But there was some point that we responded by faith. And I like what I call hindsight theology. You look back on these things, Bob, and you go, oh. He didn't save me because I was good or because I did these things. In fact, as you referenced, all the bad self-righteous things in verse 3 are still hanging over my head. But when the kindness of God came, his love appeared. And this is what it looked like, that he could save us, not based on what we were or what we did, but by his mercy. It should always blow our minds, right? It should always call us back to our foot of the cross and go, I don't deserve this, and I cannot comprehend why.
2: That's very true, and don't miss verse 8 as sort of, a, of an answer to some of the questions you were just dealing with there. He saved us not because of works in verse 5, but then in verse 8, he says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things mm-hmm. so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Right. So there it is. And don't stop. uh,
1: These are good and profitable for men. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Therein lies the tension. And, And just in my own sanctification, spiritual life journey, whatever I call it, I agonize. Maybe it's the way we're raised, but I agonize over, you know, have I done enough not to secure or assure my salvation, but am I loving God? I go back to my earlier analogy. Maybe it's not the best, but am I loving him and ready to obey? Yeah. Maybe there's a better way of saying it.
2: No, I think that's a a great way to say it. And, you know, part of your conditioning, I married a Roman Catholic, and then we were quite young, and eventually, you know, she came to a living personal faith in Christ. But in the course of our courtship and early marriage, I learned that to be assured of your salvation, from her standpoint, was a mortal sin. Yeah. It's a mortal sin. It will keep you out of heaven if you go around thinking that you know you're saved.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's pretentious. Uh, Yeah, that's pretentious stuff. I mean, that's where we grew up is, you know, how dare you say that? You know,
2: that's hubris to say things like that. So here Paul sets us down before he calls us to an assurance that the largest Christian denomination or confession in the world today says is a mortal sin. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And of course, I think we can all feel that could get too big for your britches and you could get arrogant and, and you could have a false assurance. You know, start thinking, you know, God owes you something. And this verse keeps us humble. It's not by anything we did. But on the other hand, what God does is so great. And maybe the key there is is verse six He poured out on us richly Mm -hmm. because of what's being injected into us all the time, which is the grace of God, the love of God. We have a predisposition to want to find ways, as you said, to obey Him and to make our lives more comprehensively available to Him and responsive to Him. And, you know, Michael, that can get to be a craving. (laughs) When we're younger in the faith and maybe have some rougher edges, the things we have to give up or the things we have to embrace to obey God, they can really feel like a chore, Mm -hmm. and they can be very painful. But I think the longer that we live in it, the more that we're relieved to have a blind spot revealed. Yeah. Because little by little, we respond to the, you know, Jonathan Edwards used the word a lot, sweetness, mm-hmm. the sweetness of God. And once we come to understand what a good thing it is to say no to ourselves and to say yes to Jesus Christ, we're on the road to something wonderful there. And uh, it leads us to eternity, I think.
1: Yeah, often in, in my own life and trying to encourage folks in teaching is, you know, sin will never satisfy. If sin would satisfy, you would have one affair or you would get drunk once or you would, you know, maybe, you know, extort or use money, you know, terribly once and to be satisfied. But because sin never can satiate man's, you know, Longings, cravings, desires, etc. The only thing that satisfies is a relationship with God and doing it His way. It, again, it's like children when you're trying to teach them, you know, good things. Whether save money, work toward gold, and you you can do that. You can get that bike or get that you know car, whatever you need. And it's a good thing to be satisfied, but sin will never satiate the longing. And again, that's when I had to take on faith as a young man. I mean, I was terribly licentious before I came to Christ. And to come to Christ and realize it's not so much what I can't do anymore, it's what I can do for Christ. And that's where it goes back to the fellowship of the believers and being in the Word. You can't do this as a Lone Ranger. At least I can't. Maybe somebody can, but I can't do this as a Lone Ranger. Yeah,
2: we definitely need each other. Yeah.
1: Let's uh, wind down his this little letter that we could talk about for hours and hours and hours. Let me get your take on this conclusion. The way our English translations break it, I think is a little unfortunate. But he says in verse nine, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, strifes, disputes about the law then profitable and worthless. It, it sort of tandem's when we were talking about social media. I, I made this very similar comment in recent weeks about you know what's good, what's wholesome, and what we do on social media. It's such a knee-jerk thing that often is not good, but be that as it may. And then he says, reject a factious man. And I have to sit back on the New Testament as a whole and what I know about Pauline theology and church planning, and I have to wonder, what was going on <laughs> that we don't know the backstory of when all of a sudden controversy genealogy strives to speech about the law? And by the way, reject those factious people. You got any sense on, I know we're a little bit on you know theological imagination here, but what might have been the context for some of this?
2: Well, one context is earlier in Titus, in chapter 1, verse 10 and mm-hmm. following, he talks about insubordinate people, empty talkers, deceivers. They need to be silenced. They're upsetting families, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. I think one of the major informing factors here is... Paul's implicit definition of a church two things I think everybody agrees on a church is a committed body of believers where the gospel message is faithfully preached and then to have a church I mean we could have that on the radio but to have a church then you have those faithful believers and in their midst they're they're administering the church ordinances so there's baptism and the Lord's Supper So, faithful preaching of the gospel, regular assembling, baptism, Lord's Supper, you got a church. Well, there's a third definition, and it often goes under the heading of church discipline. Mm -hmm. That is to say, this is a body of believers that has sworn allegiance to God and to each other as the body of Christ and to a certain, we could say, pastoral order, and they're agreeing to abide by Christ's rule in the fellowship. So this is not anything out of the blue in verse 10. It's just confirming what he said earlier on in the letter. There is a problem with false teaching mm-hmm. and wavered behavior. And then at the end, he kind of puts a cap on it and says, uh, you know, don't get involved in foolish controversies. But if worse comes to worse, you know, you do your best, Paul puts it elsewhere, he says, so much as it lies with you, be at peace with all people. Mm-hmm. But sometimes 15. crises arise, and the leaders of the church have to pray and seek God's counsel and Scripture's counsel, and often, you know, in a church framework, there's some official lines of, of a duty to take, but sometimes you have to say to somebody, and of course, Jesus says, go in private and, and go a second time if that person won't repent or won't back down, Jesus says, disfellowship them Mm -hmm. until they come around. So I think that's what he's talking about there. We hope it doesn't come up very often, but no ministry goes very long without either wayward people, or or you could look at it from the other point of view. You could say, you know, Satan raises up opposition, (laughs) and it takes the form of this person or that family or that movement, and the church has to this is why I see it as a shepherding matter. You know, we have to defend the flock. That's Acts chapter 20. Paul said, mm-hmm. you know, wolves will come in and you shepherds, you have to defend the flock. And so I think that's what he's saying here. Defend people from these kinds of predators.
1: And if memory serves, in Acts 20, it's from within yourselves. Exactly. Which is really chilling. But, you know, I find it, and of course, you know, this we're probably about the same age and not my first time around the block, but... Every church I've been in, I've had to deal with factious people. We used to have a guest reception in one church. We were we had a lot of guests every Sunday because of the part of the country. And people would come in and say, oh, we've been going to—you have to ask the right question. I've learned—I've asked a lot of the wrong questions, you know. But I used to say, are you coming from some other church? And they would start bashing a church they had just come from. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the, so I learned, no, are you new to the area was my question. Yeah. <laughs> so— Oh, we used to be at such a church. And man, that guy, and he would they would go off on this pastor. And I knew most of the pastors in this area that were evangelical, fundamental, Bible-believing you know kind of churches. And I had this just very snarky, smug, smiling answer. I'd say, oh, you know, uh, Bob's a good friend of mine. <laughs> and just stare at him. Because A, I didn't want them bringing their problems to our church. B, if they're that way, And the way they've left, and they're telling a complete stranger, you know, the woes. Now, sure, if there's a relationship there and there's some false teaching going on or whatever, you can have a context for that conversation. But my point was, it just seems like factious people, they're not hard to find. (laughs) That's (laughs) very true. And it does take sometimes a rejection to say, wait a minute, we are not going to, you know, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. But you can't be divisive. You can't be factious. And it takes a lot of courage in a volunteer organization, in a culture that worships inclusion and diversity and a whole bunch of other adjectives right now. It is so challenging to say, I'm sorry, but to your point, shepherding the flock of God is the most important organism on the planet. And you're welcome here, but you can't be factious and divisive and teach crazy stuff.
2: Or that word pugnacious that you used a
1: while ago. Yeah. No pugnacious people allowed. That could be the, you have to have a vision statement, right? (laughs) Not pugnacious. It does help. Yeah, it does help. (laughs) Not pugnacious. All right, Dr. Yarbrough, give us, you began this way. Give us a application or two or three. As you read Titus, you studied it for years, taught it. Give us some applications, some takeaways, lessons we need to learn.
2: Well, one thing, it kind of goes back to our discipleship discussion early on, but discipleship, of course, has to do with teaching and learning. And I think one of the major takeaways in our climate is that sound doctrine is foundational to fruitful lives. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Sound doctrine is foundational to fruitful lives. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons I love to teach in seminary is because people... Are taking so seriously their desire to learn that they pay tuition to be taught. Yeah. And one thing I observe in churches is a lot of times, as soon as the sermon starts, certain people will just close their eyes. (laughs) You know, they're not there to learn. And if we're not learners, we're probably not really worshipers and doers. And I think Paul wants churches, he wants Titus to be overseeing churches. Where people are really benefiting from the fruit of the gospel. And that has everything to do with what we're learning. You know, when you talk about reading your Bible every day, that's intake from the Holy Spirit who inspired scripture. And it can totally transform our lives if we're diligent in sticking with it. That's one point the importance of sound doctrine. Another is, I think, the inevitability of conflict in the church. Mm -hmm. Every chapter touches on and sometimes kind of goes into detail about. How do you handle problems, and how do you identify them? How do you stay away from them? How do you finesse them when you can't avoid them? And sometimes people get discouraged because there is conflict, but we need to realize there was never a time when the church didn't have to contend with the kinds of things that we wish didn't exist. And the last thing I'll mention, and Michael, you might want to tease another one or two out, but one thing we haven't mentioned, when you read Titus, I don't know What you did, like an informal poll of church people. What's the word, the theme that's talked about the most? And uh, the answer by frequency of word use is either God or Savior or Jesus. Mm -hmm. So those three words occur 23 times in only 46 verses. And that doesn't count all the times that God or Savior or Jesus is the subject of a sentence or Or you've got a pronoun like him or he. right? So the God-centeredness, I think there's something deep in us. You talked about this earlier, sin can't satisfy. You know, sin does kind of satisfy the flesh, but when we come to faith in God through Christ, we have a new presence. We're remade with it. We've got a receiver, and that receiver is longing to connect more and more fully and totally with God. Mm Mm-hmm. And when you read through Titus, it's easy not to see God, because we can wonder about Crete, and we can wonder about this teaching, Uh that doctrine, and this strategy. But we got to remember, the word that occurs the very most thing that Paul is most full of as the Holy Spirit inspires him to write is the living God. Mm -hmm. So I want to really highlight, there's something here that all of us long to be more in line with, and that's our Creator and our Redeemer, the Lord God who uh, has revealed himself as the Savior in Jesus.
1: I appreciate you bringing that out. And in all the books, the Pauline letters, I have been emphasizing the Christologies at the onset. Some of them, every verse, the way we annotate a verse, every verse will have multiple references to God, the Father, the divine pronouns. (laughs) You know, it's Mm -hmm. like I couldn't write a sentence. I was talking to another Greek scholar friend of mine and said, you know, I can use Greek pretty well, but to write in English as efficiently as Paul wrote in Greek would be, I don't have the skill set or the time. Mm -hmm. then to see the inspiration of the way God's spirit moved him to pen these letters. And you're right. I mean, the the most repeated themes and topics are, are the things that we need to come back and focus on. But in all of Pauline literature, Christology leads the list. You know, it's who is this Christ? He's the God-man. Who is this Holy Spirit? He's the indwelling Spirit of Christ. You know, and we just sometimes miss the obvious things. But again, it is a book about God, <laughs> right, to us who are desperately need him. So, Well, I could talk to you a long time, and I appreciate this conversation with Dr. Robert Yarbrough, a.k.a. Bob. And I thank you for your time. Thanks for your discipline and, again, for your sweat equity.
2: Thank you for your faithfulness and ministry over many years.
0: Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.